Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Malibu blamed everyone but themselves, up to and including blaming Ryan Batchelder himself, the seven-year-old boy, for his own death for the first time during closing arguments when there was not a shred of evidence to support it and all the testimony was flat out against it. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how was your Thanksgiving? You know, and I I think we just talked about this, Yvonne, and I told you I wasn't going to ask you about it, and now I did. So, uh, (laughs) Steve, it was a very, very uneventful Thanksgiving. I know that. Steve is asking about my Thanksgiving because my back went out like an old lady and I couldn't drive anywhere or even put on shoes or barely do anything. So I didn't do anything for Thanksgiving and I was supposed to bring the potatoes um, to my parents' house. And so they had to go without potatoes, which was really, I think they got the raw end of that deal. Um, but it was not my best Thanksgiving. Um, and then I followed it up, Steve, as you know, with an MRI last night and I wore my Apple watch into the MRI machine. <laughs> um, but it, I didn't die. It didn't explode. And my watch still works. So yeah. this is the Apple advertisement section of our podcast. We're hoping to get some endorsements from Apple. Apple. Survive the MRI scan. Apple, if you're struggling with the market share, <laughs> looking for new ways to reach potential customers, reach out. Um, how was your Thanksgiving, Steve? Thank uh, you so my- much for asking me about mine that I told you. <laughs> I, not to I, ask I, about. I As soon as I said it, I realized I screwed that up. Um, <laughs> but uh, but not uncommon for the show. Um, my Thanksgiving was uh, was great but you know as as you know my day has not been great because i'm on a different computer and i was thinking about this because uh, i don't know how many people know but i'm 49 years old i'm i think i'm in relatively good shape i i, I told you how a couple of months ago i literally was just sleeping in my bed and then woke up with excruciating back pain i mm-hmm. mean so i had done nothing strenuous just slept and woke up with excruciating back pain and then similarly today I had my laptop at home working fine. I turned it off, brought it into the office and uh, tried to turn it on. And my laptop is just totally kaput dead. So literally I did, my computer is, is now like me where we do nothing and, uh, and we just completely shut down. So, um, and, um, tell everybody before we we get onto the show, tell everybody what the error message was saying from your laptop. Cause I feel like that was especially frightening. It said invalid partition table. <laughs> so, you know, what all of the computer experts on who listen to the podcast, you can tell me what an yeah. invalid partition table means. Who, who hear this podcast a week from now, <laughs> yeah, please exactly. reach out to Steve. <laughs> His computer's broken. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's enough of that. We've Let's got, get down to uh, business, Steve. We've got two fantastic lawyers with us today. And I want to first introduce Don Fountain from Clark Fountain, La Vista, Prather, and Litke Rubin in West Palm Beach, Florida. Don, welcome to the show. And how are you doing today? Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm interested to hear about your Thanksgiving a little later. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and I should tell everybody that if you want to look up Don, you can go to ClarkFountain.com. That's C-L-A-R-K-F-O-U-N-T-A-I-N.com. And you can look up Don. Uh, and we also have with us Drew Ashby 
from Ashby Thielen Lowry in Atlanta, Georgia. And you can look up Drew at atllaw.com. Drew, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. We really do have two fantastic lawyers who have been involved in just a, I mean, there's no other way to say it, just a completely tragic case. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I want to give a little bit of background about both Don and Drew before we move on. So Don has been trying uh, cases for a long time and had just a number of record setting uh, verdicts and has tried cases, not only a ton of product liability cases, which we're going to be talking about today, but has tried a case involving a cruise ship hitting an iceberg outside of Alaska, has tried a case uh, involving a funeral home mishandling uh, human remains and everything in between uh, those two areas, has three times been named Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers in America for 2015, 2019, and 2021, has been named a Top 100 Trial Lawyer in America, has been named as uh, one of Florida's Top 10 Lawyers, and was uh, awarded the uh, AAJ Justice Stephen Sharp Public Service Award, tried one of the first Takata airbag cases and has just done a ton of work. So Don, we are so pleased to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. And Drew is a fantastic lawyer here in Georgia, has worked on a ton of great cases, has had a number of record-setting verdicts. Before he joined the plaintiff's bar representing victims, he worked on the defense side and handled cases all over the country, has been named both a rising star and a super lawyer, is heavily involved in uh, GTLA and AAJ, a graduate from Auburn University. I thought you guys were going to pull it off this weekend. You got so close and uh, sorry, sorry, you didn't make it. And then uh, in Regent University School of Law. And in one of the things, in obviously one of the cases that we'll be talking about today, but Drew has tried cases, not just in what uh, some people might term more liberal or plaintiff-friendly venues, but has tried some cases in some very tough rural conservative venues and just gotten really great verdicts, including the case that we're going to talk about today that was tried in Raven County, Georgia, which is in the northwest mountains of Georgia, just a, a rural area and not known as a um, not known as a plaintiff-friendly venue for people who try cases. So, uh, so Drew, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me and Don here. It's an honor. We really love having guests like you on who not only just try a ton of cases, but love to study how to try cases and put so much work into the cases that you try that you end up with tremendous results like the one that we're going to talk about. So without further ado, let me just give a little bit of background of the case that we're here to talk about. This is the case of Stephen and Margaret Batchelder on behalf of Ryan Paul Batchelder versus Malibu Boats. LLC, formerly known as Malibu Boat, Boats Inc., uh, Malibu Boats West Inc. Uh, at all. Uh, and basically, this involved, I think Ryan was out on a boat, a Malibu, it's a 20-foot Malibu Response LX bow rider. Ryan was out with his brother uh, and his two cousins, as well as an uncle and his great uncle, Dennis Ficara, who was driving the boat. This was on Lake Burton in Georgia, July 17, 2014. 
Ryan was seven years old. He was riding in the bow of the uh, of the bow rider. And I'll let Drew and, and Don talk a little bit more about exactly what happened with the bow. But essentially, the bow in this boat had been designed as an afterthought, where it initially had been uh, designed as a closed bow. And then the manufacturer, Malibu Boats, realized it was losing market share. And so then used a saw to cut open the uh, the bow and then made, called it, I think, a playpen seating area. So basically suggesting that children should be sitting in this area. And what happened was, is that basically they were out enjoying a day on the lake and started doing circles on the lake, basically biding time to figure out what they were going to do next. As they made their second circle, they went over the wake that had been created by their boat. And I think it was the second, there was two wakes they were going over. And as they uh, tried to go over, the bow went under the water and started to submarine down towards the bottom of the lake. Uh, this is something that's known as bow swamping that's known to the manufacturers that can happen. And essentially, the bow in this had was only had about nine inches of clearance above the water. Uh, and that's with nobody sitting in the bow. So when this happened, as the boat started to go down towards the, the bottom of the lake, the driver, Mr. Fakara, put the boat into reverse in an effort to pull it back out. At the time that he put it into reverse, didn't notice that Ryan, and I think also Ryan's brother maybe, uh, had both gone into the water. And as he was trying to reverse it out, which only lasted about one to two seconds, Ryan went out the left side of the, of the bow and then got sucked up under behind the boat into the uh, propeller. Uh, it severed his severed his leg uh, multiple times all the way up to the hip, I believe, and then uh, impacted his abdomen, causing uh, life-threatening injuries. And Ryan essentially over the span of about two to three minutes bled out and died there. And as I understand, and this is just one of the horrific facts of this case, is that his body was so tied up with the with the propeller that they could not get him loose while they were trying to get the boat out of the lake so it's just a completely tragic loss of ryan and and as we'll learn as we talk about the facts of this case completely avoidable the manufacturer knew about it knew that this was a, a an issue and essentially uh, decided to do nothing about it but we'll talk more about that um the case was tried in rabin county georgia which is a very uh, rural conservative uh, venue. I think it went um, over 70% in uh, favor of uh, President Trump uh, in the last election. Um, and the uh, verdict that came out was a, a total verdict of $200 million, uh, $5 million for, for value of Ryan's life, $75 million for pain and suffering, and then $120 million in punitive damages split between two of the defendants. Um, so just a, um, uh, I mean, it's just a horrific set of facts, uh, but a tremendous verdict and tremendous work by both, uh, by both Don and Drew um, in, in handling that case. And, um, and uh, guys, I don't know if I hit all the, the facts there. I mean, those, those are um, just, you know, I mean, if you think about it from, uh, you know, I've got kids and, you know, I, I think, um, uh, I know both Don and Drew have kids that you, when you think about that, it's just a time out on the lake, you're enjoying yourself. And then just the worst thing uh, possible could happen. Uh, and, and really uh, it was just completely avoidable and, um, and senseless. Um, so, but um, 
Uh, just tremendous work. I don't know if I got all the, the facts basically right. Did I, uh, did I mess anything up there? I think you did a fair job. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well, um, where would you guys like to start? I mean, th this case obviously in, in, involved uh, uh, severe injuries with a, in, in, in death with a, with, uh, a seven-year-old boy. But um, as in most of these product liability cases, the manufacturer didn't accept responsibility, um, you know, and basically fought uh, every uh, bit of this that they could. And, and I think um, uh, was banking on the fact that, that you were in a very conservative venue. Um, how, why don't we start there? How did you uh, find Rabin County to be as far as doing your voir dire and, and um, uh, and what the, the jurors were like in the jury makeup. Well, Raven County was a, was a great place to try, uh, try a case, I think. Uh, we did still have uh, the pickup trucks with the uh, Trump flags flying by the courthouse virtually every day. So we did have that dynamic there. But at the end of the day, I think the jurors understood the magnitude of the loss, uh, the tremendous tragic nature of it. Uh, and they responded with a verdict that, um, uh, that we think is fair, is based on the evidence. Um, the largest verdict in that county historically had been $1.3 million. So I'm sure that the manufacturers were saying nobody in Rabin County is going to give a big verdict uh, for a case like this. Uh, the boy was seven years old. He never worked a day in his life. He had no earning capacity, et cetera. But as far as the jury uh, selection was involved, but Drew picked the jury, did a tremendous job picking the jury. So I'll let him talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it's it's important to understand that when we came into this case, um, we were hit like a club with a club from the carrier telling us that we were in a bad venue that doesn't value human life and doesn't particularly take kindly to people who make the claims that we're, we're making. Um, had this case been in a more traditionally, um, frankly, a, a, a venue where cases are tried on a regular basis, I think I'll, I want to talk about that for a second. Uh, I think things would have been different, but they were using the lack of data about this venue and their traditional understanding of things that just aren't true, that people who are politically conservative don't value cases, don't value life don't listen to claims like these. Uh, they were using that as a club to force Stefan and Meg Batchelder to settle for dimes on the dollar very early in the case. Um, they forced us to try this case, and that's why we did it. We tried to settle this case more times than I can count. In fact, we were mocked by opposing counsel for trying to settle this case uh, so many times, and maybe we could talk about that later. But the point I want to make is that Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, uh, people of all stripes, all races, uh, they, they look at cases through the human lens. And if we have a story to tell them about how this has affected people in a very human way, uh, they respond. And they respond to evidence when people do bad things. When people do bad things, come into a courthouse and pretend like they didn't do bad things, and then try to sell that they didn't do bad things even though the evidence is right in front of them on the screen, uh, juries of all kinds are gonna to respond to that. And we knew that early on. Now, I gotta be candid with you. When you look back at the data for this venue, you see 
there really haven't been a lot of big verdicts, but you also talk to some of the local people and you say, you find out, well, cases aren't really tried in this area. And so there really wasn't any data. And, and I spent a good bit of time in this case, and I, and I want to be honest about this with your audience, just genuinely terrified about the venue because I thought, well, my goodness, you know, what's going to happen? Uh, we know that the cases aren't tried out here, but the other side seems really invested in their theory. And I'll tell you the moment, I mean, it was a moment when I, I felt incredibly good about the case and about the fact that we could pick a fair jury in the county. And that was the moment we started talking to these folks in Voidir. The moment we met them face to face, we knew that they would do the Batchelder family right and they would do the case right. Doesn't mean it has to go a certain way. It doesn't mean that we, you know, if it didn't go our way, we'd have felt like we picked a fair jury in this case. And to be honest with you, it blew us away. There was no one trying to get out of jury duty. There was no one trying to, uh, you know, say they didn't want to be on the case. It was the exact opposite. We, 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 we had 72 people in voir dire and the only people that were getting kicked off were for cause. So um, once we met the folks at Raven County and once we got a chance to share a little bit of the story with them, we knew from moment one that they were going to do right by the family and by this case. Did you uh, have uh, run any focus groups up in uh, Raven County beforehand? And if so, how, how did those go? Uh, we, we uh, and the case is uh, still pending and we're going to be on appeal. So I, I don't want to get too deep into, yeah. into any of this, but uh, we did some informal uh, work uh, in that, in that regard. And uh, uh, so I, let me just say, yes, we, we did some work in that, in that direction. Uh, yeah. There's one of the things that, that I wanted to touch on that Drew brought up is that not only were we dealing with a, a conservative venue where there was really no history of any product defect cases ever being tried, let alone any major cases. We had clients who were from Florida who were there on vacation for a family reunion. And this area of North Georgia is a very tourist um, uh, heavy area where people come for the mountains and the lakes and the, the outdoor activities. And during jury selection, there was a, uh, a series of questions that came up where about the feeling that jurors have for people from out of town particularly from Florida. And I recall that one of the jurors said, yeah, we call them Floridians, you know, uh, when they come to our, our city and our town. And so this was a, a fear that we had early on in the case as well. But I think what Drew said, it's, it's the nail on the head, is that this was a very human story. It was easy to understand for the jurors and notwithstanding conservative venue, who they voted for for president, or what they felt about people coming into their community from outside the state, you know, they understood the evidence, they understood the facts, and they rendered a verdict that is really representative of, of, of the magnitude of the loss. And I think what Malibu and their lawyers and their insurance carriers failed to realize is that people anywhere have the ability to do that given the right facts and the right presentation. And it doesn't really matter what venue you're in. I, I've heard that so many times we don't have big verdicts around here. You know, the biggest verdict we ever had involved cattle. You know, I've yeah. heard that several times. <laughs> but with the right case, with the right people and the right facts, uh, that really doesn't make much of a difference. Yeah. Um, so related to that, I, one of the things that I've, I've found is, is that when you're in a venue with a um, with a complicated case, like a products case, where people don't typically want to try those cases, um, 
there's a lot that you want to do in in litigation, in discovery, um, you know, whether it's motions to compel and the discovery fights you tend to have in products cases or the expert intensive work that I feel like sometimes um, those venues or those courts are not used to it um, or or, you know, that's not how they typically do things. Um, how much of that did you all come up against, if any? And, and, and if so, how'd you handle it? Drew, Drew you take that. Um, our judge in this case uh, was Judge Chan Caudell. And he had a, a varied practice before he was elevated to the bench. Uh, for those of us law nerds in Georgia, uh, we had to file a superior court in Raven County. Um, most states have a state court and a superior court. Some counties are so rural that there is not a state court available. And so Judge Caudell was who we drew. He was just, frankly, luck of the draw when we filed the case. Um, I, I don't know how I can put too fine a point on this by saying that we could not have had a more thorough, thoughtful, and engaging judge throughout the process. Um, I know Yvonne and Steve and, and Donna's experienced this too. We've come up in courts where, you know, candidly, we're asking them to do things that just take more time out of their day, like here are discovery fights. And most people would rather have a root canal than rule on a discovery fight. <laughs> so we didn't experience that at all. Every time either party, I mean, frankly, Malibu had issues with us that either party brought something before the judge. He, 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 he read everything by the time that we'd showed up to argue it. He was thoroughly engaged and really tried extremely hard to get it right. I mean, he would sometimes, you know, get excuse himself for the bench and go in the back and then come back. He would oftentimes take rulings under advisement just so he could do this, uh, you know, look a little more carefully. So all, all I'll say to that is we didn't encounter the typical problems that we could in other cases because we had a judge who knew the importance of the case, but would have treated it this way if it were a $15 case. I mean, he just, he, he takes his job that seriously. Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed. Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me. Yes, yes. A lot more working from the computer. Yes, and only getting dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services. That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference, online, it's more important now than ever. I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now, Legal Technology Services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of Legal Technology Services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number. They'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of 
documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services. Yeah. And I mean, LTS, I'm going to, I'm going to call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained and you can always count on them to represent you well, whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in-person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions or they're doing settlement videos, other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you. You can always count on them to conduct themselves well. Clients like them, judges like them, courts like them, lawyers like them. Yeah, the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial, while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us, they always like our trial techs, whether it's Bob, Taylor, Quentin, David, Liz, just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there. But they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos. They do settlement documentaries. They do demonstratives. And everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And they, I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, but look them up at ltsatlanta.com. Uh, one of the th other things that, Drew, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, for, for law nerds, I mean, this is mainly two trial lawyers. Um, you know, this was a, I should have mentioned that this boat was manufactured in 2000. So in Georgia, you had this uh, statute of repose in play as well. Um, so there is no strict liability claim. Uh, the failure to warn claim survives. And then the negligent manufacturing, negligent design claims uh, survive to the extent you can show essentially willful wanton type uh, behavior, which in this case, if I'm correct, they, the jury did not find right on, on that claim. Yeah, that's right. The judge let the claims go to the jury, but the jury did not find that they acted, Malibu acted with reckless disregard for life and property as it related to the design. Because right. the, only the only claim that we tried to resurrect was the design claim. And, and I think if I can, I don't want to send us off on a rabbit trail, Yeah, yeah. but we talked earlier about the jury. And I think <laughs> what you're seeing with that verdict form is just how seriously the jury took its job. I mean, they deliberated extensively over two days and they filled out that verdict form extremely carefully. And it is a perfectly filled out verdict form. And they said, look, guys, you didn't show us that Malibu acted with reckless disregard for life or property when it came to the design of the boat. But you did show us these other things with respect to a failure to warn and the failure to warn if to come full circle for the law nerds was about the defect of the boat. Right. And so that's the jury just filled that out perfectly and really got it right. Yeah, um, they, they, they did. I want to just highlight one point on that is that the jury understood the evidence so well that they said no willful and wanton at the time of the design. But as the boat was in use and the knowledge was developing, it then became willful and wanton not to warn. Right. Which is legally splitting hairs, but doing it in exactly the right way that they should have. And it shows not only how smart and how attentive the jury was, but how 
um, uh, intuitive a group of people, even from a rural county in northern Georgia, can be when it comes to interpreting things that are not inherently simple. Yeah, and one thing I, I wasn't sure about, but I, I, am I correct that um, basically, and we, we'll talk about this as we go, but there there was another case that had been handled against um, um, MasterCraft, I think it was, and that was sort of a wake-up call within the industry, and then it sounded like that maybe Malibu had started putting warnings on their boats that they were manufacturing after that point, but didn't do anything about the boats that were before that. Is that right? Yes, that is exactly right. The, um, the Bell versus MasterCraft case was tried in Northern California, came out in 2011, the summer of 2011. So 11 years after our boat was manufactured. And Malibu was all over that case, even before the trial uh, occurred, because they had been poaching employees from MasterCraft. The same people were working in their plant who worked at the MasterCraft plant, also in Tennessee, a couple of towns over from where our boat was made. So they knew all about the case. And as soon as that verdict came down, they said, holy cow, we got to do something about this. And they did take some affirmative steps, but they stopped short. They said, we're going to do warnings on all our new boats that are going off the assembly line, but we're not going to warn people in the field who already have our boats. And we had that in their own minutes of their meetings. And I believe that's what got the jury upset. The jury was aggravated by that. It was very simple to do. They had only made 2,400 of these boats. Now, they were distributed across the world, but there was only 2,400 boats. We all get yeah. recalls in the mail every day for products they make you know, millions of. And they decided, you know, not to do that. And I think that was what made them check that question on the punitive damages award that they failed to warn when they knew they could, they should have, and they easily could have done it. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to go back to one issue, and, and this is sort of an overarching theme, as I understood it, that um, a big part of the defense, maybe the main part of the defense, was to blame Mr. Fakara for the way he drove the boat, and especially putting it in reverse once the, the bow went under the water. Um, one thing I noted in some of the notes that you sent us was that uh, you had done some voir dire on uh, some of the factors that went into uh, blaming Mr. Fakara. And I'm wondering what the voir dire was, uh, because it seems like you maybe circled back around to that in the closing argument. Is that is that right? I got to give a hat tip to my friend, Tanya Brooks and uh, Adam Malone, who really helped me fine tune this strategy. But when you think about, well, well, picture this. I mean, put yourself in the shoes of a Rabin County citizen. You live near two of the most beautiful lakes of the state of Georgia. You know boaters, you see boaters, you see out-of-towners come in and be boaters. And the people you see the most problems with are these renters, the folks that don't seem to have the, big, the, the most experience with boats. And so when you ask these folks, what kinds of boating crashes or incidents or accidents have you heard about, they'll tell you the stories. And that's, what, that's the way we started Wadir. And we wrote down on a chart in front of everybody, the factors. And, and, and Don was sitting there with me and the factors were all the same. So, so there were all these factors that kept coming up over and over and over and over again, every single time. Bachelor party was something that had happened about less than a year before we tried this case. There was a big bachelor party. A guy was skiing, he went down, he fell off the skis, boat circled back around and ran over him. Mm. Um, and so when we collectively experienced together with the jury, what these crashes that they had experienced were like, we were able to help them see implicitly 
that their initial gut reaction when they think about a wreck is some sort of human error involving all of these different things. And when we were able to systematically eliminate them one by one by one for the jury, they were able to see, they were able to open their mind to consider the fact that the boat itself may have been the real cause of all this. Um, and so that's what we were helping them understand. And I think, I think it was very effective. And one of the things that you told me about this case, Drew, that, that, I mean, there, there's so many shocking facts in this case and shocking stories from the trial that, and I, that I hope we can get to even half of them. But, but one of the things that really surprised me as somebody who has um, done products liability work, and I thought I knew a decent amount about product design, was that um, Malibu, this massive boat company, these boats were at least for a while being not, were not being designed by engineers at all. Um, that was, and, and with no testing, that was shocking to me. Now, how much of that you knew going in, how much of that you sort of uncovered as discovery was going on and, and how much you got to, how much you focused on that at trial when you had all this other stuff to work with as well. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I knew it before the, before we started the discovery, um, it is routine for a lot of boat companies to have okay. no, no engineers, no naval architects, no engineer sign off. They have lots of people that they call engineers, but who are not educated, trained engineers. And uh, now uh, not all boat companies are like that. There are some boat companies that, you know, they have all naval architects, all engineers, but a lot of the smaller uh, companies and Malibu is not a, not a small company. They're they're a very very large company. They're the world's largest in their in their market. But a lot of the smaller companies will have no engineers. Now some of them will create a design and then before they actually start selling it, they'll farm it out to an offsite engineering firm. And I have yet to handle one where they had engineers or naval architects involved in the design process. And it, it is shocking, but it's uh, it's a reality. Yeah, that, that is amazing. I mean, you know, as, as somebody who not too long ago was in a market to buy a boat, I mean, I would have assumed that Malibu was one of the better ones just because they have the big name and they're the big company. Well, they're the biggest company. They're the biggest ski boat manufacturer in the world by double. So their closest competitor is almost half their size. And it's been this way for many, many years. It's been a strategic choice by Malibu to gain more and more and more market share. You know, to put a finer point on some of the things that Don said, it, it was an actual person who only had a high school education and did not have any training in engineering or any training in design. And the CEO who was supervising him and ordering him to do things like cut a hole in the bow of the saw so he could stick people up front in a boat that was never designed to carry people up front was also a high school graduate with no training in engineering and no training in design. And to this day, uh, Malibu has as its VP of design that same person who designed this boat. They hired him from a dairy farm uh, and, and basically brought him in and trained him to do uh, whatever he's doing today. It, that kind of stuff blows us away. And you have to soft pedal that. You can't really come out hard. You have to let the jury draw its own opinions and conclusions about that, particularly in an area where you know, candidly, no matter where you are in the country, this guy's story could be inspirational. Mm -hmm. But the jury did draw its own conclusions about that. I don't think anyone wants to be driving in that kind of boat and particularly putting their family and trusting their families in that kind of boat. And the same is true of the testing. 
you know, they just had nothing in place. They, if the boat floated and drove around on the river outside of uh, Lawn County, Tennessee, they sold it to the public. And there aren't any like, um, you know, like federal standards or anything that it has to, that they have to meet? Of course, there are federal standards they have to meet, but no performance standards. So, you know, there's lots of standards about you got to have lights on the boat. You, you can't have your battery too close to the fuel tank so it doesn't blow up, uh, things of that nature. But there are no standards that exist, uh, federal standards for the performance of a boat or how a boat should be loaded or the amount of freeboard that the boat should have. They just don't exist. And you know, we're not saying that, that someone from high school can't design a nice looking boat that can operate on the river, but we're talking about extreme conditions and emergency situations that have to be evaluated just like in motor vehicles and everything else. You know, bad things are going to happen and that needs to be a part of the engineering process for a consumer product, particularly one that you design to carry families and children, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's something that just should happen as a matter of course, but it's not required. I, I had no idea. And I, I maybe I'm just trying to make myself feel better, but I have to think most people don't know that. I think it's you're crazy. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, what's funny is if you dig in a little bit deeper to sort of close us off on this issue, Malibu, again, the biggest ski boat manufacturer in the world was started in the early 80s. Don, was it 82, yes. 81? Yeah, so 82. They did not hire their first engineer to participate in any way in the design process until 2013. So that's how long they went on making thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of boats. But they did hire engineers. They hired them to figure out whether their manufacturing process was efficient so they could be more profitable. But they didn't hire engineers was in the most important place they possibly could in the place that was putting the products out there for people to put their families in. Yeah, that's just uh, that's just crazy. I, I wanted you all to to uh, expound a little bit on on how they came up with this design. As I mentioned just briefly, was that this was initially designed as a closed bow boat, and then uh, they realized they were uh, losing market share, and so essentially they cut a hole in the boat and then made a seating area. Didn't even make a, a way to get from the the boat. Uh, the bow to the cockpit, which, you know, most boats at least have a, have something there. Uh, go ahead, Drew. No, Don should take this, but I just want to orient the listeners. The bow is the nose of the boat, right? Right. So that's a boating term. It's the very, it's the pointy end of the boat, the point that goes forward and there's seating compartments up there in some boats and in other ones, it's just covered in fiberglass. Don, tell them about the design of this boat, how it came about. It's, it's really shocking. Yeah, so, so this boat was originally designed in the, in the mid-80s, and it was a closed bow. It had a windshield, and the entire front of the boat was just a fiberglass deck. There was no seating up there. Nobody was intended or able to sit up there. If you took a wave over the bow, it would just roll off the boat back in, into, the, into the lake. And so now when you went to the boat show, you would have this, the, Malibu, the Malibu response boat, which had no seats up front, so it could hold, you know, three to five people. And you had the Crackcraft boat that could hold seven or eight. And so the owner of Malibu said, we got to put some more seats in our boat. And there's only one place to do it. And that's the bow. And the gentleman that designed the boat um, but with the high school education said, okay. And he took a saw and he cut a hole in the forward deck and they put a seat in there and they called it a new design. And unfortunately they never 
took the engineering step of evaluating, okay, we're going to put people and now wait in the front of a boat that used to have a closed deck, but now has a four foot hole in it. How is that going to affect the safety of the boat? And that's what they did. And they got to market and they kept their market share. They sold a bunch of boats because now it was a family boat and there was plenty of room for the family to ride in the boat. And the other thing about these boats is they're primarily made for pulling people behind on ski ropes. And when you do that, the ski pylon is mounted in the center of the boat, just to the left side of the driver. And so if you're pulling somebody behind the boat on a ski rope, you can't really have people sit in the back of the boat because the ski rope goes back and forth across their head and neck area. Mm -hmm. So it's foreseeable to them that for ski boats, it limits your capacity to probably three people if you don't have an open bow because you can't have people in the back. So you really have a boat that can only hold three people. And they said, that's just not selling for us. It's not working. So we need more seats. And of course, when you do that, those people have to now sit in the front of the boat. And there's not going to be anybody in the back because you're using a ski rope. So people can't sit back there. So all your weight is now in the front of the boat. And unfortunately, they just didn't think to test it to see what's going to happen uh, when you have all your weight in the front of the boat. Is the playpen thing real? Yes, they they called this seat the playpen seat because that's where you would put the children when you're water skiing. And it's shaped kind of like a playpen. It's a circular padded seat, very similar to what I put my grandson in when he comes over to visit. Uh, another term that they developed, term of art internally at the company, was the hot tub seat because it was so frequently that water was coming into the, to the bow of the boat that there was water in there. And because there was no drain from the, from the bow area to the cockpit, water would accumulate in there for a period of time. So they call it the hot tub seat. That is so insane. So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not gonna come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like digital law marketing. That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of. Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into, but it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital law marketing is great at it. 
Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done. But they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website. And you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com. Tell them, tell them we sent you. So I, I first want to make the point, but then I want you to talk about some of these complaints of the water coming into the bowel. But um the, the ski nautique that had been designed that they were trying to catch up with, uh, Correct Craft had actually changed the design of their boat to account for the uh, to account for the the weight that was now being put in the front. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So when they cut uh, the bow open of their boat, uh, they realized internally that this is going to be adding weight. In other words, you know, boats are like seesaws. Airplanes are kind of like seesaws too. How you load it depends on where it's going to go. And they realize you're putting more weight in the front of your boat. You need to account for that by counterbalancing it in the back of the boat. So what they ended up doing at Correct Craft, Ski Nautique, is moving the engine backwards about 12 inches. The engine's about 1,000 pounds. So it's almost half the weight of the boat. So it's a huge deal. But they didn't stop there. They moved the entire helm uh, so the, the area, the steering area and the sitting area for the, for the pastors, they moved that back about six inches, but they didn't stop there. They knew that the extra surface area in the front of the boat was going to accumulate water, whether it was coming over the bow, which it really shouldn't, or if it was just raining, it was an area that would catch water. So they added a drain, three drains into the area, two that went straight out into the lake, one that went down into the boat, and they added an extra bilge pump to pump that water out of the boat. Malibu did literally none of that. Malibu did nothing but cutting a hole and sticking the seating in there. And I think it's important to, that your listeners realize when, when, when we all participate in boating these days and we sit in the bow area, the front area, the nose of a boat, we are walking through from the cockpit to the front of the boat. They were not able to do that with this design. They had to keep this completely isolated. So. Picture this, I'm sitting in the front of the Malibu Response LX 2000, same boat that was in this incident. If I want to get out of the boat and get to the cockpit, I have two ways of doing it. The first is I can literally jump overboard, swim back around the back of the boat and climb up the ladder. The second is I can crawl off of the floor, on top of the seat, on top of the top of the deck and walk through a tiny 14 inch window door through the windshield. And ironically, through all this, that door locks from the inside. And Malibu says, you have to keep it locked at all times. So if you're sitting in the bow and there's an emergency, the only way that you can get back, unless they open up that door, is you have to hurdle the windshield and jump back into the cockpit, which is somewhat of what we saw in this incident. So it's, it's just a, a horrifically designed area and it's made even worse when you don't take into the engineer, you don't take the engineering concerns into account by counterbalancing the weight. 
Can you talk a little bit about some of the evidence that was developed when uh, Malibu started getting complaints of water coming into the bow, uh, as I understand, was uh, pretty damning evidence and the kind of thing that uh, would make a jury upset in, in a failure to warn case? Uh, yes. Well, the, the first evidence that we had was the um, Malibu employees themselves. Uh, one of the perks of working at Malibu is that if you want to go water skiing on the weekend, you can borrow some of the boats and take your family and friends out. And we took the deposition of more than a dozen Malibu employees and to a person, and they're all men, by the way, sorry, Yvonne, but uh, all, the, all the guys that, that, that drove the boats on the weekends, we asked them all, have you ever had water come over the front of the boat? And every single one of them said yes. And how many times? Uh, oh, three or four, maybe 20. Somebody said 50. Somebody said, I can't remember how many. So Malibu was having internal, and these weren't complaints. Nobody got hurt. But, you know, this was a, a warning sign, if you will. It was a thunder on the horizon about what was going to happen. That we've got a boat where we're taking water over the front of the boat, and that's never a good thing. That's a bad thing. You don't want water coming over the front of your boat during normal operation, particularly in a family boat. This is not a United States Coast Guard boat going out to rescue somebody. So those complaints started happening from the, the moment the design emerged, if you will. And keep in mind, Malibu sells boats all over uh, the world. They, they have Australia, Europe, China, India, everywhere. And there is not a unified uh, mechanism for keeping track of boating incidents around the world. So what we see is only the very, very tip of the iceberg about what is out there. Uh, the United States and North America is the only um, organization that keeps track of boating incidents across the board. And it's kept in the United States Coast Guard BARD system, the Boat Accident Reporting Database. And it covers all serious boating incidents dating back to 1969, 1971. And what we found when we looked in the BARD database, and keep in mind, this is only incidents involving injury that requires some type of medical treatment, death, or property damage in excess of $2,000. So if your boat swamps, nobody gets hurt, uh, there's no property damage done that requires $2,000 or more repairs, it's not in the database. It's not required to be reported. And there's many states that do not participate in the BARD system for privacy reasons, including our largest state, California, where Malibu is headquartered and sells the most boats. So when we looked in the BARD database, we looked at bow swamping incidents for Malibu boats of this design. And what we found was staggering, that there were, I think it was 86 or 76 incidents of this happening. And those are only the ones in the United States that were reported from the states that participate. And what was shocking is that Malibu never looked at the database. They just simply chose not to avail themselves of the data in the database. Now, if you have a company like Ford or General Motors, you know they're looking at, they're monitoring the accident data. How many rollovers do we have? How many rearing collisions? Malibu decided we're not gonna look. And what we know from what we found is there's a lot, but what we also know is that we only found a very, very small percentage of them. And many boating accidents, unlike motor vehicle accidents, uh, go unreported. You know, people have something on a remote lake, you know, the police don't get called, somebody gets hurt, goes to the doctor, 
the vote gets fixed, there's no official reporting. So your reporting numbers are much, much lower. They're much skewed in favor of non-reporting than motor vehicle crashes are. So Malibu had all these warning signs. They were there from their own employees. They were there in the BART database for them to see if they wanted to see that. Uh, we had internal emails from their affiliates in Australia from their plant uh, where the Australians design, uh, defined bow swamping as duck diving. And they said, hello, you folks in America, have you ever had experience with the boat duck diving? And they said, what do you mean by duck diving? They said, bow swamping. Oh, and then Malibu in the United States sent back an email and said, are the people in the boat too fat? Should they go on the Atkins diet? You know, they were joking about this bow swamping event that ultimately claimed the life of a, of a beautiful, wonderful young man. And it was disheartening to see the world's largest company stick their head in the sand with regard to how their boats were being used in the real world. But if they'd simply done that, they, could, they would have said, or listen to their own employees, hey, we got to deal with this, we've got an issue. Yeah, I mean, I, that was one of the things that kept striking me in, in reading some of the 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 stuff from your case and, and even the, the, you know, historically what had happened in terms of the failure to warn in this case about how until I started to do this kind of work, I think I thought there was a lot more sort of regulation and oversight and checking of products than there are. I think most Americans think that there's a lot more that the government or regulatory agencies are doing a lot more to check things out, that there's that more information is centralized and getting to folks than really is. And it's just this case, this result that you that you all got um, is really the only thing that that brings this stuff to light. And, um, you know, the same thing with, you know, the verdict that they were all worried about and kind of trying to figure out how that, you know, what they needed to do to CYA was a was a verdict. Um, but, you know, of course, all their efforts there were about um, covering um, themselves and not uh, really about warning other people, just figuring out what the minimum that was that they could do to kind of get by. So it's still not totally warm and fuzzy, but well, I mean, maybe we should fill in some of the evidence that was developed on that. So after this Bell versus Mastercraft case comes out, um, there was meetings within the industry. And um, Don, you want to talk about what action was taken or was not taken after that? Yes. Uh, and, and one of the things that uh, people don't often understand is the inherent power of the jury beyond the case. And we saw it throughout the entire, not only the industry in the United States, but throughout the world. Uh, the Bell case changed the world. And we're hoping that this case is going to, the Batchelder case will change the world as well. What we saw in the evidence, and we had evidence not only from Malibu, but also from industry organizations um, that, are, that are involved in the boating industry, that as soon as that Bell verdict was rendered by that jury, the industry jumped into action. Malibu itself decided we need to do a risk analysis of all our boats, had never been done before. We need to start testing our boats, had never been done before. We need to add warnings to our boats, had never been done before. We need to add, add seating charts to tell people where they should and should not sit in our boats, had never been done before. All these things Malibu started to do after the Bell verdict in 2011. They've been in business for 25, 30 years. They weren't doing these things for that entire period of time. The industry also met and they meet 
there's, there's a big boat show in Miami every year in the winter, and the industry people get together. They meet in um, Miami. It's called the Boat Industry Risk Management Council. I kind of like the sound of that. Mm. They get together, and we got the minutes and the notes from the public version of that meeting. Now, there is executive session where they talk about the, you know, the, the, the more things that we really want to hear about. But they have lawyers and insurance companies and boat representatives there. And what we found is the industry pays attention to verdicts and they paid attention to the bell case and the message got out in the boating industry. We need to do something about that. The Water Sports Industry Association, the WSIA has another meeting. And there's all these, the NMMA, the National Marine Manufacturers Association, all these industry organizations have reacted not to um, general thoughts of let's be safe, but to juries telling them that they were not safe. So the Bell case uh, was heard around the world. The Batchelder case will be heard around the world. I can guarantee you that Malibu has made internal changes at their company. I can guarantee you because I've heard through other back channels that other companies in the boating industry have made changes because of this verdict. And this verdict will make boating safer. Is it going to cause the United States Coast Guard to do anything? Probably not, but it will motivate the industry to want to avoid not becoming the next Malibu. Yeah, I mean, it's a tremendous verdict and hopefully will uh, bring many, many changes within the industry. Um, we, we haven't really talked much about um, the damages side of the case and about the, the family that was involved, uh, uh, Stefan and Margaret, and then, of course, Ryan. Um, do you want to talk any uh, about the evidence uh, that was developed on that and, and, uh, and, and how they did and, and, um, and, you know, about the family in general? So Stefan and Meg are Don and I's heroes. Um, these are incredibly courageous people. They not only endured something that no parent should ever have to endure, but then after being literally mocked by Malibu for five and a half years, agreed not just to come back into the state of Georgia, something they wish they'd never have to do, but to walk back into Raven County and try this case um, and sit through over two weeks of evidence where uh, Malibu blamed everyone but themselves up to and including blaming Ryan Batchelder himself, the seven-year-old boy for his own death for the first time during closing arguments when there was not a shred of evidence to support it and all the testimony was flat out against it. That reeked of desperation. So I just wanna say from the get-go that Stefan and Meg were courageous through all of this and the jury saw their story. I mean, Stefan got up and shared with that jury things that he's never publicly spoken about. Uh, he got up and shared the story of when he was swimming out to the boat to help because he was on the shore, that he was swimming through things in the water that he didn't understand and didn't have a way of processing and didn't know what had happened at that time. He was trying to get out there to assess the situation. And it was an incredibly emotional and powerful testimony. Meg left the room for that part of the testimony because to this day, Meg does not know that Stefan endured that because when Stefan got to the boat, he was told by the people in that boat that what he swam through was his son coming out to that boat. And it messes me up even talking about it. But the Malibu's response to that was to come in and give him a hard cross 
and talk about why he never told that in his deposition and how he was hiding things from them. Uh, it was one of the most shocking things that I've ever seen in my entire career. And it was the last thing the jury saw before they went home for the first Friday of the first week of trial. Um, the stories that came out other than that, right? The human story of how Steph and Meg met, this human story about how Ryan came to be and his brother, the human story about their family and what meant, what meant, what was important to them, what, what was, you know, the kinds of things that they did, the ways they loved on each other. Ryan was an extraordinary young man. Um, there are really deep and heart-wrenching stories about the, the, the void of Ryan that affects people to this day. I mean, Ryan was the younger of the two boys in the family, but he was the most outgoing and his brother, Josh, really relied on him to make friends, to meet new people. Um, you know, Ryan was literally the star of the play at school for the annual play that was the most important play at school. He was literally the kid that was the ringleader in the neighborhood, um, bringing people together. And that's what the jury saw is that Ryan's presence made people happy because Ryan was very, it was very important for Ryan to Ryan for people to be happy about him when they were around him and to be happy because of him. And he brought people together as a result of that. And when that broke, when that was taken, it's left a fracture and a void that the family's never quite recovered from. Um, the damage, that's the, that's the human side of the story. The damages as it, as it relates to Ryan are some of the things you've already gone over. You know, Ryan endured something that we can't possibly imagine um, that people who are tortured in other countries don't go through. Um, his left, the, the very bottom part of his left leg right around his toes impacted the prop and that prop was spinning at thousands of RPMs, you know, rotations per minute. So it took his leg off iteratively all the way up to his hip, at which point it opened his abdomen to the cold lake water. And the lake is a clear lake, Steve and Yvonne. I mean, you know, he's sitting there, he's seeing this, he's experiencing it. He was not unconscious when this happened. He was not unconscious immediately after it happened. And the, the coroner testified ultimately that he died uh, as an inextricable result of a combination of drowning and blood loss, drowning and trauma. It didn't happen quickly. The, the coroner testified that it would have, excuse me, the, the medical examiner testified that it would have been between one and three minutes for him to actually pass away from this. And Malibu knew this. I mean, Malibu knew that when you leave a boat that is moving, you are moving towards a spinning propeller. And it will tell you this. It tells you, they tell you this in their operating manual. The one time they don't want to talk about the fact that that's a real possibility and not even just a possibility, but a likelihood is when they're on trial for this very thing. But they tell you that these things are possible. They tell you that they're likely. And they knew that this was the possibility that was gonna happen when Ryan was washed out of that boat. Um, what Can I just add one thing real yeah. quick on that? Please do, yeah. Um, we, Drew and I both told Meg and Steph that we didn't think it would be good for them to sit in for most of the trial. That what they were gonna hear and see over and over again was the callous attitude that we've been talking about here today. And we said, we really think it's best if you don't be there for all that. It's not going to help you. And, you know, they, they insisted. They said, you know what, we need this for our healing process. We need to know the facts that claim the life of our child. And they sat there and they endured it. 
and it was their decision to do it. And I know the jury felt that because one of the questions that the jurors sent out during the deliberations was, can we set aside some money for a foundation, for a fund? They didn't specify what it was for, but they felt the impact of this family. And, you know, we weren't able to tell the jury because of motions that the family has already set up a foundation for Ryan. It's called Little Hugs that has been operated for years. And it is designed to help children, particularly children in times of need and trauma. And that that feeling that the jury had about this family had already been realized. And so they connected on that level. And one of the greatest things about any case that any lawyer can ever have is a great client. And we had the best clients that exist. And Malibu just did not see the power of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I am curious to find out, it, it, Drew, you mentioned it. How, how did they try to blame Ryan for what happened? Oh, I got to tell you, that was a uh, Don and I experienced that together side by side. Um, Don had given opening close. The jury was spellbound. I mean, they just didn't miss a word or a syllable that he said. And it was uh, the time for our opposing counsel to get up and give his closing. And for your listeners, we get the final word uh, under most circumstances. And this was one of those And I was going to do the final close. And I had a little bit of, you know, what I wanted to do kind of, you know, written down, but at the same time, you want to be in the moment, right? The opening statements about what the jury is going to hear and the closing statement should be about what we collectively experienced together, us and the jury. What did we experience during this trial? And I'll tell you something that Don and I experienced during Malibu's closing argument. Every single bit of evidence in the case, including every single one of Malibu's experts, said that Ryan was seated in the bow when the bow swamping occurred. That is the undisputed testimony of every eyewitness, and there isn't a shred of evidence to dispute it. But in closing arguments, Malibu's counsel got up and said, you know what, I think that I have a picture here that shows three kids sitting in the bow. And you're saying that there were four sitting in the bow and these three kids look pretty cramped. So I'm gonna go ahead and tell the jury that Ryan must have been standing and maybe even leaning over the edge and that that's the reason he went over. He was doing something he shouldn't have done. And when I heard that, I saw red. Um, I just absolutely saw red because although I couldn't express my the full amount of my anger in front of that jury, we expressed a righteous anger based on the love that we have for Stefan and Meg Batchelder that isn't fake. We love these people to the bottom of our hearts. And for us to have to be sitting next to them, tears streaming down their face because they can't move and they can't react out of respect for the court and the jury, but they have to listen to that garbage. Um, we shared that with the jury as a collective moment that we experienced together. And I guarantee you, they talked about it in the jury room. We didn't address it long in closing. I don't know, Don, you, you could tell me I, I, I was seeing red. So maybe it was 30 seconds, maybe it was a minute or two. But then we just moved on to the evidence of the case because we're not going to let these folks distract us from the important evidence of what that jury heard. And collectively, we experienced all this together over three, well, two weeks and a day together. Yeah, I, when I heard that, I saw red too, and then I saw green. I said, thank you, Mr. Defense Lawyer. This is the kind of thing that I love for defense lawyers to do, 
to go outside the evidence, to show their desperation. You know, this is a family that was doing everything right. Brian was seven years old. He was an avid swimmer. He was an excellent swimmer. He's wearing a life jacket. Every single witness in the case, including all Malibu's people admitted, Brian was doing nothing wrong. He was sitting in a designated seat. I asked every one of their experts, did Brian do anything wrong? Are you blaming Ryan? No, no, no. And then to have the defense lawyer out of nowhere stand up and make this up and then tell the jury, don't forget, you have to decide this case based on the evidence, not on emotion. You know, when he's talking about an argument that's outside any evidence, it was it was offensive. It was embarrassing. I was embarrassed for Malibu that their lawyer got up and said that. And I have to thank him for doing it because it was a blessing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's just... Uh... Uh, unfortunately, not surprising, but uh, but shocking all the same. Um, so I, I do want to hear a little bit more about the argument of the defense to blame Mr. Fakara, um, the driver, uh, for basically what happened in one to two seconds. Um, and then I and then I was also wondering, did you have a chance to talk to the jurors afterwards about the verdict and and about that uh, about how they assigned uh, seventy five percent of the blame to Mr. Fakara. Um, we did not get a chance to talk to the jurors. They deliberated over two days, including on a weekend, on a Saturday, uh, and you know by the time uh, the issues that arose during the reading of the verdict and immediately thereafter, we had to address those. The jurors had already gone, and we were not able to speak with them. I would have loved to have talked to them, but yes. Uh, in, in any boating case, and really in any product defect case, it's always blame the operator. And we knew that would be from the very beginning. And um, that's what the entire defense was based around. And of course, we all know that in hindsight, everybody can be a Monday morning quarterback about how easy it would have been for me if I was there to avoid this and do something different when an event happens that's unexpected. Uh, you know, this was a, you got to picture yourself at a family reunion with everybody around you that you love on a Chamber of Commerce day on one of the prettiest lakes that you've ever seen, uh, having fun and looking forward to what you're going to do that night. And then all of a sudden your boat is now headed to the bottom of the lake and you got to do something. And there's only one person that can do anything and that's the driver. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Fakar was an experienced boater. He's 65 years old. He was not under the influence of alcohol or drugs. He doesn't even drink alcohol. He had his glasses on. He'd been operating boats. He was a merchant marine graduate. He'd been operating ski boats his entire life. He'd spent hundreds of hours in boats just like this one. He knew how to drive a boat. In fact, uh, Darren Batchelder, who was the other adult in the boat, said, when I saw the boat filling with water, I thought to myself in that instant, thank God, Uncle Dennis is driving because I wouldn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And Uncle Dennis made the decision in the blink of an eye to an unexpected event to try to do something to stop the emergency that was developing in front of him. The boat was filling with water. It was going down toward the bottom of the lake. And if the forward momentum of the boat had not been arrested or stopped, the boat would have continued below the surface. The expert said if the boat's momentum had not been stopped, the boat would have gone further below the lake and could have rolled over entirely. And he made that split second decision to put the boat into reverse to stop that from happening. That action brought the boat to the surface and leveled it out. He did not know that Ryan and his uh, 
Brian's cousin, Zach, were in the water. He said, it, I never saw them. It, I never knew they were there. It all happened so fast. Uh, and that was the entire defense is that, you know, you should have done something different. Uh, you shouldn't have done that. And uh, the jury obviously um, accepted that argument to some degree. But I think that they were ultimately overwhelmed by the by the design evidence and the callousness that the company had shown during the development and design of the boat. And that's why they rendered the verdict that they did. I want to I want to jump in here and say one thing real quick. Um, I'm going to give you a great reason why you should never litigate against Don Fountain, because Don dug through and read the entire trial transcript of that Bell versus Mastercraft case. Steve, Yvonne, you remember that case we talked about 2011, there was a verdict against Mastercraft, the competitor that changed the whole industry. Um, ironically, just a little rabbit hole here. Don asked them, he said, hey, guys, would it have changed the industry if it was a small verdict? If they were basically, <laughs> they admitted that it wouldn't have. It wouldn't have made a, a shred of difference. <laughs> but because it was a big verdict, they paid attention and it changed the industry. But there was a key nugget in that trial. And Don, I want you to tell them that. We, we brought this out in trial and Don crossed one of their key experts and absolutely shredded them on this issue. Yeah, the, the defense darling expert for the boating industry is a fellow named Robert Taylor uh, out of Michigan. And he was actually the expert that Malibu hired initially in our case. And he came down to uh, inspect the boat several times and do his thing with it. And when, they, um, when Malibu disclosed the experts that they would call a trial, they didn't list Robert Taylor. And I was kind of puzzled because he's the go-to expert. He was the expert for Mastercraft in the Bell case. And he testified at trial in the Bell case. And when I read through the trial transcript in the, uh, the Bell case from California, which was a relatively similar incident, you know, it was a slow speed, boat turning, bow swamped, went underwater, people went into the water and two ladies were hit by the propeller. The defense in that case was that the operator of the boat should have put it into reverse to keep the boat from going under the water. And guess who gave that testimony? Robert Taylor. And uh, so they didn't disclose Robert Taylor in our case. I was kind of hoping that they would because it would have been so much, so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> but, but they disclosed another lady from Robert Taylor's company named Wendy Sanders. And Wendy Sanders was also involved in the Bell versus Mastercraft case, although she did not testify at trial. But she wrote the report for Robert Taylor that he testified from. And her opinion, I think it was opinion number 14, was that the operator, when the bow of the boat was going underwater, should have put it into reverse. And so we had a little bit of fun with that on cross-examination at trial. But it, it, what's very apparent is that the defense in boating cases is blame the operator, and the facts upon which we blame them depends on the facts that we have in the case to deal with. Right. Whether you should speed up, slow down, put it in reverse, or do nothing. Uh, that's what they did. But uh, they took the opposite position that um, Mastercraft did with the same expert. Uh, in the Bell case. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, Mr. Fakara was in an emergency situation and Georgia has a jury instruction for sudden emergency and people are not held to the highest degree of care or the same degree of care uh, that they are when there's not an emergency, a sudden emergency. And we argued that to the jury. Uh, they accepted it to some degree, but, you know, look, we knew going in that uh, that there was going to be a line item on the verdict form for Mr. Fakara, and we knew going in that there was going to be a percentage filled in in that blank. You can't 
simply can't get 12 people in a case like this to not compromise and have a discussion about items like that. And so we knew there would be a percentage of fault assigned to him. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask you about is I understand there were three, uh, three Malibu defendants and um, one of them uh, was defunct. And then can you talk a little bit about what happened in the trial uh, with, with regard to that and the verdict um, and, and what uh, Malibu tried to do in their defense? Yeah, so this is uh, unfortunately pretty simple. During the entire five and a half years of litigation spanning one, two, three, four, five law firms, um, Malibu pretended that it was one and the same. Uh, so they basically just said, well, hey, look, we're the same entity. In fact, the only reason they ever changed their name over time was because they were bought out by a private equity company. And then the private equity company pumped them and then dumped them into the market on the NASDAQ stock exchange when they took them public. So it, it, was, a, it was a value play for them to essentially buy the company, build, 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 and then sell on the NASDAQ which is when they changed their name a different time. Then, hence the three names, the original company, the private equity company, and the publicly traded on the NASDAQ company. And it was crystal clear, these were the same companies, same employees, same owners, same investors, same desks, same calculators, same everything. Uh, and so they never tried to be different throughout the case. But a few weeks before trial, they brought in a new lawyer who is an appellate specialist and is, uh, well, is adept at uh, trying to put footholds and toeholds into issues uh, that people just haven't litigated. Well, the reason Malibu didn't litigate this is because it was common sense. They were the same company, but this new appellate lawyer didn't see it that way. So for the first time in trial, about day four, they brought up the fact that they were going to blame the original defunct company for everything. By the way, that was their own client. So you legal <laughs> ethicists out there, you take a look at that. Tell me right. how that's possible. They were going to blame the defunct company because it had no assets and no insurance. And they were going to make sure that the Batchelder family couldn't collect a single penny of their verdict or the punishment damages, the punitive damages that the jury assessed against Malibu would never be collected because they would be assessed against a defunct entity. So on the fourth day of trial, we had to prove a whole new legal theory uh, that we had no discovery for because this had never happened this had never come up. There wasn't a motion, there wasn't a mention of it. And in fact, Malibu immediately before trial stipulated that they were going to act as if they were the same companies. They just started to undo this on day four of trial. Um, and so Don and I huddled up with the team and we decided, you know, we, we could have kicked this defense out. They didn't, they didn't raise it in the pretrial order. They didn't raise it in any motion. They didn't raise it in their answer. They never raised it before day four of trial. But Don and I ultimately decided we want a clean verdict and we're going to take a swing at them. And Don had some pretty good theories. I had some okay theories about how to do that. And we ultimately ended up getting it out of the live witnesses they brought to trial. Remember our VP of design, the dairy farmer, uh, when Don had him on the stand, Don just asked him, hey, these are the same companies throughout 30 years of, uh, of, of history, right? And he said, oh yeah, same company, different name, same company. And from that moment on, it was over. We got more evidence out, but from that moment on, it was over. He's also the same person, the same person, two questions later, to tell the jury that despite Ryan Batchelder's death, despite this case, 
And despite what we had discovered that they pretended they didn't know in this case, that they hadn't changed a single thing at Malibu. Nothing had changed as a result of this. So we were essentially forced to parry a brand new defense on day four of trial that you need discovery to parry. But we took it mid-trial. Don did a masterful job getting it out of the live witnesses. And at the end of the day, the jury heard the evidence. The jury checked on the verdict form that the second company, the private equity company, was exactly the same as the first company. And therefore, this is called a legal successor. So therefore, they are liable for their debts. And that just happens to be the company at Malibu where they hide all the assets. So it was a, a win-win all around. The jury got it, and their attempts to sandbag us with a brand-new defense on day four of trial failed. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> um, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead, Steve. Well, I was just going to ask, uh, I, I looked at some of the demonstratives that you used during trial, especially some of the boat and what happened to the boat during the uh, incident involving Ryan. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, you know, first of all, um, you know, who helped you with the with the uh, demonstratives and um, and were there any other demonstratives that you thought were particularly effective in um, in trial? Uh, yes, the, uh, the the challenge with with any boating case is that you don't really have much physical evidence, you know, to deal with unless the boat hits something, you know, a piling or something like that. So. There was essentially no physical evidence on the boat. There's no data recorder on a boat where you can see the speed, the radius of the turn, or RPMs of the engine, anything like that. So you're not really able in most cases to do a what would qualify legally as a recreation of the accident. And so what we decided to do instead was to illustrate the physical properties of the boat and how the boat would sit in the water under certain load configurations that were foreseeable and intended. So we started by taking the boat and scanning it inside and out into the computer. So we had a detailed point cloud of the actual boat. And then we, um, we determined the size of the wake that the boat creates. And we were fortunate not only to be able to do it on our own, but there was also a paper published in Australia, believe it or not, where the Australian government was concerned about these boats and their wakes eroding the shorelines of lakes and rivers. And so they did a study, and since Malibu is the boat manufacturer in Australia, they studied the Malibu Response LX boat. So we had scientific data of the exact wake size. We then um, took the boat in the point cloud scan and created a, a scale model of the boat in relation to a scale model of the size wakes that the boat creates. So we could see how the boat sits in the water we then took the boat in the, and put it in the water to see how it floats, to see how much freeboard it has. Uh, we then um, uh, took the boat and we, the, the testimony in the case was that when the police officers arrived at the scene, there was a, a foot and a half of water in the boat that had come in during the swamping event. That's a lot of water. So we took the accident boat and we filled it with water to figure out how many gallons that was. And all of this was put together by our accident reconstruction expert and our visual uh, design experts to come up with a computer model, not of how the accident occurred, not a recreation, but to demonstrate how the boat sits and floats in the water under the load configurations that existed at the time of the incident, both before the water came in and after, 
when the boat crosses a wake of the size that the boat creates. And those are the illustrations that you saw. And what you could see from that, and, and we did have our, our uh, naval architect, he did some testing of the exemplar boat uh, to show, you know, in real world situations, how the boat crosses its own wake. But you could never get enough of the variables uh, dialed in to actually recreate the incident. And so we used the actual on-water testing overlaid with this engineering analysis of the, uh, the boat and the wake it creates to show how the boat uh, operated and how it went under the water during the event, not only based on the physical principles and the science, but also based on the witness testimony. And those are the visuals that you saw. Because to say a boat had a bow swamping event means one thing to one person and something to another. You know, what is that? What does it look like? How much water is involved? Is that 50 gallons or is it 500 gallons? And that's what we were able to illustrate with those illustrations. And I think it's important that what Don was able to uncover in all of that is that this boat, remember Don mentioned the word freeboard. Freeboard is how high is the tip of that nose off of the water? How high is the tip of the bow off the water? And this boat creates a wake that is two feet tall. And when that bow is loaded, when that nose of the boat is loaded, not even fully, just loaded, the tip of the front of the boat is nine inches off the water. Mm. It creates a wake that is two feet high that is going to be overcome somehow by something that is nine inches off the water. It's just, it's just a tragedy waiting to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, what I was going to ask is, is, you know, we've been talking about a, a lot of heavy stuff as, as a part of this case, but um, didn't y'all try this case in like a crazy place? <laughs> yeah, I, I, before before you answer that, I, I should mention, and I didn't mention at the beginning, this verdict was August of 2021. So this yeah. is a recent verdict. So and during COVID. So uh, talk a little bit about uh, the trial conditions. Yes, we uh, our verdict was at the end of the, the tail end of August of 2021, right in, in the middle of COVID. And we had been continued two or three times uh, because of COVID. And uh, I will say the court and the court personnel in Raven County were extremely accommodating. You know, they felt bad that the case kept having to be continued. And so they made arrangements uh, for us under COVID protocols to try the case in the Civic Center. And if you can imagine yourself in a building that's probably very similar to your high school auditorium where you have a stage and then a, a gallery and just a huge open room uh, that's about 100 by 100, uh, with folding chairs. And that's where we tried the case. And the, the court uh, was up on the stage uh, at, a, at a folding table. And uh, we had the full complement of the bailiffs and the court personnel and everybody there. Uh, but we were able to social distance. Um, you know, we were in a big room. Uh, we were required to wear masks uh, when, whenever we were not speaking. Uh, the jurors wore masks. Um, there was social distancing. The jury box was the biggest jury box I've ever had. It was essentially about 80 by 50, I think, <laughs> for them to spread out. And uh, it was extremely accommodating. Uh, we did advise the court and the court personnel that everybody from the plaintiff's uh, crew uh, had been fully vaccinated. And uh, we made sure to uh, uh, abide by the uh, uh, social distancing and the COVID protocols the court put into place. And it really worked quite fine. Uh, obviously, nobody likes wearing masks all the time. Uh, 
and it was hard to sit there all day for two and a half, three weeks uh, wearing a mask and you weren't talking, but uh, well, we got through it. My, uh, my, my brother Don is underselling it a little bit. So <laughs> let me add some color commentary to that. Uh, the Civic Center used to be a basketball auditorium, but they ripped the bleachers out and stuck either carpet or hardwood down, depending on what part of the room you were in. The front where the witnesses waited was where they sell concessions. So it was the concession stand. When you walked in, there was a disco ball in the center of the courtroom, <laughs> dead mid center of the room in addition to colored light displays that went all the way across. And behind Judge Caudell on the stage was a black curtain, but the black curtain had uh, little areas you could see through, not holes, but just the weave wasn't that tight. And it covered the annual Christmas display. I believe that's what it was, Don. And so there were twinkling lights coming out from behind <laughs> Judge Caudell. And as if that wasn't good enough, the basement, the basement of the Civic Center. This is, is what I wanted to get to. <laughs> The basement of the Civic Center is where the jury literally deliberated for most of their time. And uh, it wasn't a working diner, but it was a 50s diner. So it's not something you could go eat at every day. They, they rented it out for events. By the way, Don, the reason the jury didn't deliberate down there is because it was a wedding or a sweet 16 or something. The <laughs> night they rented it out the night of jury deliberations. So they had to go over to the courthouse, which was 100 feet away. But it was a working 50s diner uh, with uh, a jukebox and checkerboard floors and I mean it was just the, it was the whole thing so this this was the full experience Don and I got to try a case in a place that wasn't a courthouse uh and not only was it an honor because of our clients but it was a really neat experience that we may never get again yeah I, I will say I've never tried a case in a in, in anything like that but I did uh, have a hearing one time in a high school gym when they were doing renovations to a courthouse over in South Carolina and uh the one thing I remember, uh, I mean, not only, you know, the the way they had the setup, but the lawyer breakout room was the locker room. And uh, so that was, uh, you know, an interesting you know, area to go, uh, go prepare for your, your argument that you're about to make. Um, well, uh, I know that they, uh, that there were quite a few stories about this, and, I, and I'll just say for our listeners, this case is on appeal. It's not over. Uh, we wish uh, Don and Drew the, the best of luck, but are, and, 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 and I know they feel confident in their case, uh, but are there any stories uh, that you are comfortable sharing about uh, any war stories that happened uh, during this trial? Um, Drew, you go ahead. I, I, I got to think on that one for a minute. <laughs> Um, you know, it's a little, it's a little complicated because so many things happened during this case. Um, I feel like one day of this case was, gave us more stories than all of my other trials combined. Um, you know, we had, we had Malibu's counsel violate so many motions in Lemony that the judge was going to strike their answer. Uh, and we stopped it. We said, please, please, please don't do that. Please don't do that. Uh, because we want a jury verdict. We want the jury to render a clean and clear verdict. We, want, we don't want complications. We don't want wrinkles. We just want a jury verdict. Um, and the response of Malibu's counsel to that was just to quit. Um, it was something we'd never seen before. He indicated that he was giving up, uh, that he was not going to put on any more evidence in front of the jury. He was going to put it on through a proffer, which just means to put it on to the judge and take the case straight up to the Court of Appeals. And that was about midway through the case, Don, if I'm not mistaken. So we were facing the prospect of having this extremely unusual, granted it would have been invited error from them, but we right. didn't want it. 
and so we tried to do everything we can. I don't know if I can go into the details, but we tried to do everything we can to put some pep back in their step so that we could get a clean jury verdict. And uh, we, we were given some motivational speeches to the other side. That's about to, all I can say. To the defense counsel. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there, are, there are two things that come to mind that, that are, are kind of little fun facts, if you will. Um, we had to stay late one night to deal with motions and everything. And so we're in, in a auditorium, if you will. And the judge felt bad because the court personnel had been working late and he let the deputies go. And uh, the defense lawyer commented to the to the judge, you know, your honor, uh, uh, you're here and there's nobody here that's armed to uh, protect you. And the judge said, don't worry, I'm packing. Yeah, right. <laughs> he, he was well armed. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. And he had a great sense of humor and we didn't doubt that he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. But uh, another another interesting part of the trial was uh, and I've never seen anything this crazy in a case before, but uh Malibu made the decision to call their CFO, their chief financial officer, to the stand. And they put him on in a very bizarre and lengthy way to explain this matrix of companies and name changes. And they had these flow charts up and he was making notes and drawing lines. And this company is for tax purposes. And this company has assets, but this one doesn't. And this one was for the uh, initial public offering when we went public and all these lines and circles and company names and abbreviations. And uh, Drew and I were both chomping at the bit to cross-examine him and uh, we flipped a coin and I won. Uh, so, you know, the question was, and we had him come back up and he didn't want to get back in front of his uh, written diagrams again. He, he was back on the witness stand uh, over by the concession department. <laughs> and uh, so I, I gave him a red pen and I say, well, all, all these companies here, I want you to take this red marker and circle the one that was responsible for deciding not to issue the warning on, on this boat after the Bell versus Mastercraft case. And he hemmed and hawed and <laughs> did his thing and tried to not answer the question for what seemed like an eternity, but ultimately circled the, the one party that was responsible for that in his mind and the jurors. I looked at the jurors when that happened and they all they all wrote it down and their verdict reflected that red circle on, on the flow chart that they had created. Yeah. Um, I also thought it was funny because I saw that drawing and part of it was like an arrow with a dollar sign next to it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. And it, to, when you're in a case where you're talking about a, a significant amount of money to call the CFO and have him talking about dollars and taxes. Was, right. Um, something that I had just not had any familiar with happening in any case I've ever tried before. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. The, the, the last kind of fun thing uh, is that, you know, you, you asked about the demonstrative exhibits that we use when we scan the boat into the computer. We also created a scale model of the boat and it was about three feet long and it went into evidence. It was used with all the witnesses, the, the, the plaintiff's experts, the defense experts during the arguments, et cetera. And it's something that really, it was tangible. Uh, it was, it was uh, something that the jury was able to feel and see and hold. It went back to the jury room with them. And I think it helped kind of personalize, you know, what had happened uh, in this case. And, you know, you always struggle in these cases, you know, we know that visuals are so important. And, uh, you know, some judges, I, I get accused of having too many sometimes the judge says, you got enough toys for the jury, no more toys. Yeah, you know, but yeah. this was this was a toy that I felt, you know, was important. 
and it showed the jury what the boat looked like inside and out. You know, we obviously we didn't, well, we, we probably could have brought the whole boat into the auditorium had we known we were going to be trying it there. But, you know, we had lots of photographs of it, but to have an actual demonstrative that was to scale uh, helped them understand it. And of course, we had in there, in, in evidence, the propeller that, that had killed Ryan, you know, and it was a probably 15 pound bronze heavy duty propeller that was bent by a seven-year-old's body that, you know, helped kind of personalize what had happened. But, you know, like Drew said, this case was a story, uh, a series of stories every day. You know, I, I frankly have never tried a case like this. I've tried cases out of state before. I always expect things going to be a little bit different than they are in Florida, but this one was kind of off the charts, if you will. And uh, after we uh, get affirmed on appeal, we'll come back and give you some more of the stories. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, I, I, I absolutely agree about demonstrative, especially models like that. I, I um, especially in products cases, if you can have a buck or something like that to use in front of the jury and get the witnesses down, it just makes it interactive. I thought I'd show you guys. I think I've shown it one other time on the show, but. This is actually a scale model of a Ford Explorer, and you can see all the marks that are on it. This is actually something that a Ford's expert had made, and he brought it to his deposition. And so I asked him, you know, will you make one for me? And uh, and so he made it, and uh, I think he charged me like six hundred dollars for this. But uh, but I liked it. I I, I used it during trial. Um, Wait, I just we had a in our office in Atlanta. It had a. Um, our old office that had a big glass sort of front lobby and and we were in a high rise with a lot of other different offices and we had two bucks that were kind of behind the reception desk but you could see them from the elevator bank and multiple times people who were going to other offices or stuff on the floor would come in and ask if we had a gym back there they thought they were like uh, weightlifting machines (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. After you spend all that money on the uh, on the bucks, you know, yeah. then you got to figure out what to do with it's them. Too, so we use them to decorate the lobby. Yeah, it's too bad it wasn't a gym. I probably right. uh, I probably wouldn't have thrown my back out on Thanksgiving if it was if we had some weight machines around here. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, th- this has been just a, a, a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. We've been talking. I want to remind everybody about the Batch Elder versus Malibu Boats case that was tried in August of 2021 in Raven County, Georgia, and resulted in a $200 million verdict. Uh, Don and Drew, is there anything else about that case that you want to make sure our listeners know about that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? Um. The only other thing I'll say is this, when, when you're an out-of-state lawyer handling a case in, a, in, in not your home state, it's always great to have great people. And you've been interviewing Drew and I today, but behind us and with us is a large team of people that are the, if you will, the unsung heroes of this case. And without them, these types of cases can't be done. This was a case that we spent a million dollars on in, in, in case costs. And to have somebody like Drew and his firm to help out, we actually hired another, or didn't hire, but used the assistance of another lawyer in Raven County to help us understand the dynamics of that county. Uh, it is priceless. Yeah. And yeah. even Malibu's lawyers understood that. I had never seen uh, the lawyer that showed up on the day of the trial before for them who picked the jury, but he was from that town. And uh, you can never underestimate enough uh, the importance of local knowledge and having good people. And uh, I got to meet Drew Ashby through this case. And it is one of the great uh, parts of my career to have met Drew and to work with him. 
Well, I, I feel the same way about Don. I feel like he's my brother from another mother. And uh, this is not going to be the first, the last case we try together. Um, it was a, you know, for me, this, this case was personally incredibly important. Um, Don and I have great love for, for Stefan and Meg, and this was important to us because we knew it was important to them. Um, Don and I know how much this is going to change the boating industry because we know just how closely the boating industry pays attention to these things and how they don't react to anything but verdicts. I wish it weren't the case, but it is. And so that's where we are. And to be really candid with you, um, about nine days before this case went to trial, uh, I had the personal honor of starting a new firm with two of my other brothers from other mothers, Max <laughs> Thielen and Seth Lowry. And um, Max and Seth had a tremendous hand in all of this. Max was with us at trial. Seth was helping us in the background. And um, to be able to do this and, and have this kind of great honor with two people that you love like that is just a tremendous, tremendous honor. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll just add, I mean, any verdict like this, any any uh, trial uh, always is a huge team effort. And uh, and while uh, um, uh, Don and Drew are the point of the spear, there's a lot of people behind them who obviously put in a ton of uh, very hard work on on a great result. Uh, and that's true for pretty much every, uh, you know, case that we have on here. Uh, and I'll also say, you know, um, trying a case with somebody new, which I've had the honor of doing several times, you know, you become, uh, you become brothers, you become best friends because uh, you're in the, you're in the battle together. And, it's going to um, go so, one way or the other, right? Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> Um, but uh, this has been just really great. I want to remind everybody, we've been talking with Don Fountain and Drew Ashby. Uh, if you want to look up Don, you can go to ClarkFountain.com. And if you want to look up Drew, you can go to ATLLaw.com. Don and Drew, thank you so much for your time. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having us. Thank you all so much. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, 
podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.